Father, we sin. Grant that we may never cease grieving because of it. Grant that we may view our sin as an assault on your righteousness. As spitting in your holy face. As a call to arms against your kingdom. As kicking dirt on your glorious feet. We see our sin as too docile, too unoffensive, too innocent. We have hearts bent on disobeying you. Bent on minimizing our sin. Bent on casually treating your holiness. We have too low a view of the offensiveness of our sin and too high a view of the sincerity of our penitence for our sin. Today, through this text in 1 Corinthians, will you increase the awareness of the atrociousness of our sin and increase the awareness of the all-consuming ferociousness of your holiness? May we be consumed by it. Would you make the book live? Let the divine dialogue that we cannot fully explain but that we fully experience take place among us. We desperately need to hear beyond the voice of a mere man. Father, we do find comfort. We do find comfort in knowing that 2,000 years before we are living this moment, 2,000 years before we are facing this season of life, you were already writing the very words we needed to hear. The very words that will be our meat and drink. The very words that will help us not to lose hope. So open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Plow our souls so we can receive this good seed. This is our corporate plea. Amen. From the jump, I want to define some terms and admit some limitations. Before we walk verse by verse through the text, I need to do those two things. Define some terms, admit some limitations. Define some terms. Tongues and prophecy. When studying the first century, you must realize there are some things going on in these churches that are not going on in our churches. And I do not want you to be confused by them. The length of Paul's treatment from chapter 12 to the end of chapter 14 shows the importance of tongues and prophecy in the first century church. Let's look at tongues first. Some of you are brand new Christians. And you're in for quite a ride today. You are perhaps thinking, Kyle, let me save you some time. I have a tongue. I don't need you to define it for me. It's the thing in my mouth. It has taste buds on it. Well, the tongue in our passage is not the muscular organ in your mouth that helps you chew, speak, and breathe. So you do need me to define it for you. Others of you have been around American evangelicalism for many years, and you are familiar with a certain denomination of churches, and you are culturally conditioned to accept tongues a certain way. You hear tongues and you think of an ecstatic, bizarre, trance-like experience where someone babbles. 
But tongues in the Bible are never ecstatic utterances of an unknown tongue accompanied by wild behavior. It's not some gibberish that isn't understood by any human people group on the planet. Tongues is speaking in a human language that is not your own. To illustrate, I will move tongues to our 21st century context. If you speak only English, you are not bilingual. English is your only language. But let's say you meet a Ukrainian refugee here on Sunday morning. He doesn't speak English and you don't speak Ukrainian. But you are given the gift of tongues. So suddenly you start sharing the gospel with him in his native East Slavic tongue. He's understanding it because it is, it is in his mother tongue. That is what the gift of tongues was in the first century. Now I've already walked out why I think tongues have ceased to be gifts for us in the 21st century. In fact, I don't know of any group, Pentecostal, Assembly of God, Presbyterian, Baptist, that believe the gift of tongues is still functioning today. Not that way. Pentecostals don't send their missionaries to countries without teaching them the language of the country. With a biblical understanding of tongues, I don't know of any group that teaches that still goes on. You have lots of groups, groups that redefine tongues as not a real language and some divine language. So you have this counterfeit tongues versus true gift of tongues debate. I do find it interesting that when deity communed with deity in the garden, when Jesus communed with the Father, it was in a human language. If ever there was a time to lean into a mysterious divine language, it seems that would have been the time. What's been taught, which is what maybe a few of you have been culturally conditioned to believe, is that there are two types of tongues. The one I am talking about, and another one. The kind in Acts 2, and the kind in 1 Corinthians 14. I don't see two different types of tongues in the Bible. One that is a real language and one that is not. I only see one type of tongue. Define some, some terms. Tongues, now prophecy. In the first century, prophecy was a sudden revelation from God that a person received. It's a spontaneous message given to a person that he then gives to the people. Prophecy in the Bible always has a sense of new revelation in it. I don't believe prophecy exists anymore in any form. I've heard Matt Chandler and Mark Driscoll and many others say that they have received prophecy. I am not on board with that. We are not looking for prophecy to reappear in our church, even if it's a less than prophecy, which is what they contest. That there has been a transition from prophecy as authoritative speech to prophecy as spirit-prompted encouragement. They affirm that New Testament prophecy is subservient to Old Testament prophecy. They aren't on the same level. They say Old Testament prophecy was thus saith the Lord, a verbatim reporting of something. And New Testament prophecy was not that. It's still directly from God, but it doesn't carry the same weight. And they contest New Testament prophecy still exists today. 
this line of thinking goes, Old Testament prophecy, infallible, no error. New Testament prophecy, fallible, it can contain error. And I say, if it is from God, it should not be fallible. I do not believe in a capital P prophecy and a lowercase p prophecy. Wayne Grudem was the fountainhead for all this reformed charismatic renewal. He's a faithful brother, and I agree with everything in his systematic theology book, except for where he disagrees with me, which happens to be on the gifts. I fear that many reformed continuationists have a theology in search of an experience. To lay all my cards on the table, I think these gifts, tongues and prophecy, were functioning in the first century church, but are not functioning in our churches. Define some terms, now admit some limitations. While walking through this text, we must strive for interpretive humility. I am not saying I understand this text with perfect clarity. I am saying with good hermeneutical skills and a clear conscience, I will exegete this text to you. I think this is one of the most difficult passages in the book so far. The most difficult passage in the book so far. And that's saying a lot because there have been some, some tough ones. But this tops it all, at least for me. I've been grappling with it for two weeks. Alistair Begg said, I find this passage jolly well difficult. <laughs> well, I agree with the Scotsman. One man in our church said he did the pre-sermon reading last week and he didn't understand anything Paul was talking about. So he told me, I'm just going to wait for you to explain it to me and make it all clear. Well, he may be in trouble and you may be in trouble too. While studying, I thought about calling the seminary where I received my doctorate and turning my diploma back in because I had no idea how to teach this text to you. But the Lord was gracious, and I think I have a very loose handle on it now. There are basically two schools of thought, and it's very easy to get down in the weeds with it. Some believe tongues and prophecy still exist, and others, like me, say they do not. There has been a lot of ink spilled over this. I've read more commentators who disagree with me than agree with me. And I like to do that in texts like this. I do not desire to lob friendly fire. I've seen a lot of people on both sides teach this text angry. I don't want to do that. I don't want my sermon to lack the lingering aroma of 1 Corinthians 13. I want the love to carry right over into my teaching of chapter 14. The only thing I can do is be intellectually honest with where I fall on this text. Through my study of the Bible, I believe special revelation has ceased. There is no more new revelation. Nothing that can be tacked on to the end of the Bible. In affirming that the gift of tongues and prophecy have ceased, I am not affirming that the work of the Holy Spirit has ceased. His work among us is active and so desperately needed. I want to speak to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verses 1 through 25, on behavior that builds up the church. Behavior that builds up the church. I'm taking this phrase directly from the text. 
It's mentioned three times in our passage. Look at verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. Again in verse 5. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Again in verse 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Beloved, we find in our text behavior that builds up the church. The Corinthians were failing to do this in in the public gathering. Their behavior instead tore down the church. Now, our 25 verses break down what their behavior should have looked like. Instructions on how to build up the church. There are two divisions. Edify the saint, verses 1 through 19. Evangelize the sinner, verses 20 through 25. Edify the saint, verses 1 through 19. Evangelize the sinner, verses 20 through 25. Paul had a problem with the church at Corinth because in their public gatherings, they were neither edifying the saint nor evangelizing the sinner. In their public worship, they were not doctrinizing the believers, nor were they evangelizing the non-believers. Christians were coming to the table hungry, but no spiritual meat was laid out for them. They came to spiritually feast, and they went home hungry. It is a shame when Christians come to the public gathering and are not given a nutritious meal. Their services became more emotionally high than doctrinally deep. So you've got starving Christians in the church at Corinth. They aren't being fed doctrine. They are being fed emotionalism. If you stick your ear to the text, close to the pages, you can hear their stomachs growling. Their souls were made to eat the bread of life, the meat of the word, the words of God. And their gathering didn't deliver. It didn't have the goods. Starving Christians, then non-Christians who stumbled, stumbled into the gathering or were invited to the gathering by some friends. They watched the show, heard the talks, and were never once confronted with the gospel. Paul yells, how can you not evangelize these people? How much do you have to hate them to not give the gospel to them? Christian, here is my promise. We will doctrinize you. Non-Christian, here is my promise. We will evangelize you. May God through his word edify the saint and evangelize the sinner and so build up the church. Verse 1. Pursue love. And earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Notice the first word, pursue. It refers to a hunter chasing after prey. That's the intensity with which Paul wants them to pursue love. He just gave a beautiful poem that explained how to do it. Paul intends to challenge some in the church on their fixation with the gift of tongues. 
He says, the gift greater than tongues is prophecy. His concern is the weight given to tongues over prophecy. They championed certain gifts over others. They had been getting kind of a spiritual high from speaking in tongues. And the effect was detrimental to the church. The spiritual high was not from God. The tongues were a gift from God. The spiritual high they received by exercising tongues in a wrong manner was not from God. They exhibited a selfish demonstration of tongues apart from love. And it was unnatural, unhealthy. It was attention-seeking. Verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him. But he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Some have contested that this is an unknown tongue. Meaning unknown on earth and only known in heaven. Some ecstatic speech. Some mysterious language. In fact, the old King Jimmy inserts a word here before the word tongue. The translators inserted the word unknown. And if you ever look at that translation, that popular translation, you will notice that that word is in italics, which was not in the original Greek manuscripts. It was supplied by the translators. The ESV doesn't supply that word. The supplied word unknown occurs six times in that popular translation and has caused much difficulty. People have contested, this is not a human language. This is a different kind of tongue. Paul even says mysteries of the Spirit, they say. Mystery. The word mystery in Paul's writings conveys something that was once hidden but is now made clear. It was new revelation from God. This verse by itself strikes us as odd and unsettling. It sounds like tongues is an unknown heavenly language here. We will discover as we walk through this text that it is not an unknown tongue. It's a known tongue, a known language. God is the only one who can understand it because there is no one who is interpreting the tongue. It's an actual language. But it's unintelligible speech because no one has the gift of interpretation to tell what is being said. Now let me prove that to you. Notice the same tongue in verse 2 is talked about throughout the chapter. Look at verse 5. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets. Mark that word, interprets. Then again in verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Then again, in a verse we will cover next week, verse 27, if any speak in a tongue, let there only be two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. Then again, in another verse we will cover next week, verse 28, but if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church. Tongues must be interpreted. The Greek word used four times in this chapter means to translate a known tongue into someone's native language. This gift was mentioned in chapter 12. It's the gift of interpreting. The same Greek word is used here. In fact, the same Greek word is used in Acts chapter 9, verse 36. And let me show you this word at work. 
Don't, don't turn there, just listen. Acts 9, 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. Same word in our text as interpreted. The Greek word means to translate, to put words of a foreign language into a known language. You kind of squint your eyes at verse 2 because sometimes it looks like it's a, it's a foreign unknown language but it becomes clear throughout the chapter. And you say, but Kyle, if tongues gave God's word to another person in their language, why would they need it interpreted? You are right. It wouldn't. Except, some would be hearing the tongue in their mother language, and others who didn't know that language would need it translated into their mother tongue. To circle back around to my earlier example, if you speak English and meet someone in the gathering who speaks Ukrainian, you have the gift of tongues, you give God's revelation in their mother tongue, well then that tongue still needs to be interpreted for those who don't know Ukrainian. Paul wanted no untranslated tongues in the gathering. Not untranslated for anyone. Apparently, people were saying... I have a tongue from God, but there was no one, including the speaker, who could translate the tongue for the people. And no one of that tongue or language that could receive it. Verse 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The church is not going to be built up listening to a revelation from God that they can't understand. They are built up through something they can understand like prophecy in their own language. Verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, remember, these people were not sitting in church with their Bibles on their laps. The New Testament had not been finished and the Old Testament manuscripts were expensive. Prophecy in the first century fed the church. Verse 5. Now I want you all to speak in tongues. Now let's pause there. I want you all to speak in tongues. Paul said he wants all the church to speak in tongues. But he just finished insisting in chapter 12 that not everyone will speak in tongues. Not everyone possesses that gift. So what's going on here? Paul uses this language often. It's a rhetorical device. He once said, I wish the whole church were celibate like me. He was affirming the honor of celibacy like here he is affirming the goodness of tongues practiced biblically. Let's pick up verse 5. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. It seems to have been reversed in their minds. They valued uninterpreted tongues over prophecy. Paul says prophecy takes precedence over tongues. He takes out a scale and puts prophecy on one side of the scale and, and tongues on the other side of the scale and, and, and he sees which bears more weight and he says it is prophecy. Untranslated tongues are unintelligible. 
Paul's intention is not to downplay or minimize the importance of tongues in the first century church. He's not damning tongues with faint praise. He doesn't say abandon the gift. There's no denigration of tongues. There is merely a limitation of function. It must operate, but under these guidelines. If tongues are interpreted, it seems they are equivalent to prophecy. They would not let loose of their uninterpreted tongues even though it did not build up the body. I'll take my emotional fix over the growth of the body. Which leads us to this conviction. You must care more about the church than yourself. You must care more about the church than yourself. This is the first behavior that builds up the body. You must care more about the church than yourself. You must be other-centered, not me-centered. We can easily fall into the error of using our gifts for our own pleasure. Look at verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Tongues serve no value to the body of Christ without understanding. They are non-edifying. You need truth to the mind. Prophecy is in the language of the people and touches the mind. Tongues, the way they were doing them, were unintelligible. Paul says you need intelligible utterance, which leads us to another conviction. The church is built up when God's word is taught in a clear and distinct manner. The church is built up when God's word is taught in a clear and distinct manner. Paul will now reach for illustrations elsewhere to make his point. And he reaches for three different ones. Musical instruments in verse 7. Then a battle bugle in verse 8. Finally, human languages in verses 9 through 12. Look at verse 7. If even lifeless instruments such as a flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? Paul chooses some common musical instruments of the day. He says, do these instruments not give clear and distinct sound? You can't communicate a melody without a distinction in tone. You need melody and music. These instruments don't just make noise. They make music with melody and meaning. Tongues, the way you are doing it, provides no clear defined meaning or melody. It is the roaring Niagara of meaningless sound. Tongues untranslated are indistinct tones. God wants distinct tones in music. Your tongues are a cacophony of sound without rhythm or reason. First musical instruments, now battle bugle, verse 8. If the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? The military bugle gave off unique sounds. One to muster the troops, one to charge the enemy, one to retreat, one to indicate an ambush, 
and one for battle formation. Paul says, unless the battle bugle is played with distinct sounds, you will not know whether to retreat or charge. You will think it's time for formation when it's time to defend against an ambush. If the sound falls dead on the ear, it does the soldier no good. If the tongues fall dead on the ear, it does the Christian no good. It serves no purpose. Instead, it defeats the purpose. If you hear a sound, but you don't know what to do with that sound, you are lost. When you hear a tornado siren, you need to know to take cover. Musical instruments, battle bugle, now foreign languages, verse 9. So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. In other words, speech is nothing if it's not intelligible. It's throwing words away into the air. Verse 10. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. There were many languages in the cosmopolitan city like Corinth. Corinth was a language melting pot. People in that day were not bilingual, much less multilingual. One would meet all kinds of foreigners on the streets. Corinth was the home of immigrants, transient laborers, and traders who did not speak Greek as their primary language. They, they would talk in their actual language, but it would seem like gibberish, babbling to someone who didn't know that language. Verse 11. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. When someone comes up to you and speaks to you in a foreign language, it sounds like bumbling. The, the language barrier is a relationship barrier. If I started preaching in Mandarin, you couldn't understand me. It would not build you up. You need God's word in your language. Verse, eight, uh, verse 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, and my, my, were they eager. Little eager beavers here. Strive to excel in building up the church. The ultimate goal is to build up the church. Paul intends to capitalize on their zeal and redirect it from inward to outward. The key, Paul says, to being built up and to being edified is understanding the truth. What I do on Sunday is not prophesy. I preach. Preaching and prophesying are two different things. No. Prophesying is declaring new revelation. Preaching is declaring old revelation. When I declare old revelation to you, I attempt to do it in a clear and distinct way. In the Middle Ages, the services were in Latin, and the people couldn't understand it. That's why they needed a reformation to put the word of God back into the language of the people. Paul is calling for a tongues reformation in the church. The people need the revelation in their mother tongue. No one will be edified by the word of God because no one can understand the word of God. Verse 13. Therefore, no one speaks in a therefore one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. So there could be overlaps in the gifts. The one who has the gift of tongues could translate it as well. Verse 14. 
For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Edification comes through the mind, through understanding. Change comes as we engage the brain. The spirit doesn't evict the mind. Tongues are not non-cognitive, spontaneous phenomena. Pentecostals say speaking in tongue bypasses the mind. Paul is telling you that it shouldn't. Look at what he's saying. If I pray in a tongue, I don't even know what am I saying. My mind is unfruitful. That's not a good thing. He's not commending it. He's warning against it. And by the way, this is a prayer. This is a corporate prayer in the gathering, not a private prayer in a closet. There is no teaching here on a private prayer language. I don't even have a category for a private prayer language because a gift used privately in a closet cannot possibly edify the church, which Paul says is the point of every spiritual gift. Every time you see tongues, it's in public. Gifts are never for self-edification. May we be rooted in this conviction. In the gathering... Teaching must aim for the mind. In the gathering, teaching must aim for the mind. You are transformed by the renewing of your mind. Worship God with your mind. There is no room for emotional elitism in the church. Everyone held captive by your experience. Some have the thought that intellect shouldn't be trusted. Paul says, worship with your intellect. It is easy to disengage the mind in worship. Don't do it. Verse 15, what am I to do? I will pray. He shows him a better way. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, and I will sing praise with my mind also. This is what Paul does. He doesn't know a worship that doesn't engage the mind. In worship, the soul and the brain need to be engaged. The heart and the mind. Friend, I try to create opportunities for you to worship with your mind. Whether you are singing or praying, it needs to be an intelligible language. If your mind is unfruitful, you are not true to your Christian calling. When the church is gathered, we do not give attention just to form, but to content. Verse 16. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? You can't amen it if you don't know what they are saying. God says, I want my people to be able to amen it. In the, fifth, in the first century, people in the gathering would say, amen. For you northerners, amen. But really, it was amen. In the first century, people in the gathering would say, amen. That implied a wholehearted endorsement of what was said. Justin Martyr, in his description of Christian worship in the middle of the second century, tells us that prayers always concluded with a vigorous amen from the congregation. If they were ministered to by the content of the prayer, they said, amen. 
This is a practice that lived in the first century and it's alive and well in our century. This amen allowed them to participate in affirming the message. How can they do that if they don't know what is being spoken? God doesn't want the amens taken out of his church. Which leads us to this. When you understand the message and affirm the message, you amen the message. When you understand the message and affirm the message, you amen the message. Paul wants the church to participate in the praying time and the teaching time. He didn't like it when they couldn't participate. They couldn't say amen. They couldn't understand. God has not called you to be passive while receiving teaching. You, you were active. You were eating it up. You were soaking it in. You are working. You are amening. You are thinking. Amen means let it be so. Let it be so. It's a strong affirmation. You hear a truth that grips the soul. You say amen. Let it be so. Do it, Lord. Yes. It's a way for people to offer a verbal affirmation to what is being spoken. Notice, this wasn't just during prayer, but during teaching. We, especially in reform circles, have an overreaction to expressiveness in worship. You don't have to remain stone-faced. We are talking about the greatest message to ever hit this planet. Paul assumes other people besides the person speaking and the person praying is saying amen. And it seems to matter to Paul, which was surprising when I started studying this text. He could have just said, stop praying in tongues. But he said, don't take the amen away. What if someone said to Paul, hey, Paul, it's not my tradition to say amen. It's not my personal taste. I'm high church, and that's a little more low church thing. Well, Paul would say lovingly, get over it. Because this is an age-old biblical pattern during prayer and preaching across all cultures. Don't remain silent in prayer or after prayer. Something just seems wrong when you're in a circle of prayer and someone is pouring out their heart and then there's just silence. There is a more biblical way. Say amen or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm is like background music that supports the one who is praying and, and joins him or her in the prayer. When people come to this church, they say, they say the best part about it is the prayer time because those people enter in. It's obvious. And I get offended because I want them to say it's the preaching time. <laughs> say amen after a prayer, during a prayer, whenever that prayer says what your heart wants to say. Don't be passive in prayer. How can we lend affirmation to what is being said without shouting or distracting or dominating the service? Well, God, over 2,000 years ago, made it simple for us. Say amen. Theologically, Christ is God's amen to all that he has spoken. Verse 17. For you may be given thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. 
In other words, if you're speaking in another tongue or language, maybe it is benefiting you, but it isn't benefiting anyone else. Stop preaching in Latin. Give them the word in their mother tongue. Give thanks intelligibly so that others may give thanks as well. Verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Now, we are more surprised by this than the Corinthians. Paul spoke in tongues all the time. Tongues are not the problem. He affirms the gift of tongues in the first century. It's the uninterpreted tongues he doesn't like. He knew the proper use of tongues, and they were not using it properly. When Paul says, I speak in the tongues more than all of you, he's done that before. I'm more Jewish than all of you. Remember that? I'm a Jew of all Jews. I out-Jew all of you. Paul wasn't afraid to pull out credentials to get his point across. Traveling to these unreached places and different tribes, Paul was given tongues to communicate with them in their language. Paul is not disparaging tongues, but the misuse of tongues. He's wanting to do more than curb uninterpreted tongues. He wants to stop it. Paul benefited from biblical tongues. The church benefited from biblical tongues. No one benefits from these unbiblical tongues. Verse 19. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. What a staggering contrast. 10,000 words to five. I usually have about 8,000 words in a sermon. 8,000 compared to good morning, welcome to church. That's five. That's how short you, you wish I would preach. <laughs> if, if it means, if, it is, if the message is unshared, private, untranslated, it does the church no good. It's not quantity of words, but quality of understanding. They can't understand one word in that 10,000. In Paul's mind, this behavior did not honor God if it did not edify the church. Paul pulls out his scale once again and flops a 10,000-word manuscript on one side and a little sticky note with five words on the other. And he says, this is greater. Edify the saint, verses 1 through 19, evangelize the sinner, Verse 20 through 25. Let me say this another way. You harm the believer by failing to edify him. And you harm the unbeliever by failing to look like you are in your right mind. Verse 20. Brothers. That, that softens what he's about to say. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants and evil, but in your thinking, be mature. Paul uses two different Greek words for children in this verse. He's exasperated by their infantile thinking. He's saddened by their continued state of habitual childishness. And he wants them to grow up. It is indeed the characteristic of a child to prefer the amusing over the useful. Which is the way they were, which is what they were doing with these uninterpreted tongues being amused by them. Like a selfish toddler enjoying their toys and never thinking of anyone else. 
the way you are playing with this sensational and spectacular gift of tongues, trying to make yourself look like spiritual big shots, is frankly juvenile. Do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in your evil, rather adults in your thinking. He wants them to be innocent as infants in their behavior. Infants aren't sophisticated in crimes. They haven't yet grown up and become experts in sinning. Paul's preaching and teaching fostered a maturity in the congregation. He pushed the church to apply themselves to the knowledge of God. Church, this is one of the goals in my preaching. To make you mature in your thinking. Verse 21. In the law, it is written. By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Paul is taking them to tongues all the way back in the law. The law is used here in the broadest sense possible. He's not talking about the Ten Commandments or the Pentateuch. The, the law is the Old Testament in general. The ancient Jews sometimes refer to the entire Old Testament in that manner. This is tongues according to Isaiah. Seven centuries before the time Paul is writing. Paul compares Old Testament tongues to New Testament tongues. This is referring to Isaiah prophesying. Same prophesying in the Old Testament as in the New Testament. No lowercase p in prophesying, all uppercase p in prophesying. Isaiah said, God will send an, an invading Assyrian army to take over the northern kingdom. And that occurred in 722 BC. This is an Old Testament text where we find both tongues and prophecy in the same account. Just like in our New Testament story. God spoke Hebrew to his people. In their mother tongue, he asked, will you repent? And they would not. So he sent strange languages to invade them. A strange tongue to them, but an actual language to others. God had spoken to his people in plain language, Hebrew, through prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, and they balked at him. So he tells them through Isaiah, the promised land will be overrun by Gentiles who speak foreign languages. When they heard the foreign tongues, they would know the wrath of God is at their doorstep. When your streets are filled with people not speaking your language, judgment has come. The Assyrians came, do you see that, with a known language? It had verbs and nouns and sentence structure, not gibberish. And Paul calls that known language a tongue. This barbaric language that the Jews would not understand would not stimulate belief, but seal unbelief. Notice in verse 22. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. It's a sign of God's judgment, not his blessing. The Corinthians may be dazzled by this behavior, but God isn't. We have in this verse a warning sign and a welcoming sign. Tongues, a warning sign. Prophecy, a welcoming sign. Uninterpreted tongues did not have the meaning for unbelievers that the Corinthians thought they had. 
Tongues did not point out to them the power of God and the presence of true spirituality. They missed the meaning of Old Testament uninterpreted tongues. Tongues were actually an eschatological sign of judgment. Verse 23. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Paul imagines two scenarios. Scenario number one. Everyone is speaking in tongues in the church and non-Christians are present. Non-Christians are completely put off and they think you are crazy. They think you are stark mad and have gone berserk. This is not biblical tongues, Paul is saying. When non-Christians come, we want to attract them to Christ, not to repel them from him. Paul's final word about uninterpreted tongues in the assembly is urging them to stop that's scenario one, everyone speaking in tongues. Scenario two, verse 24. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. We go from the negative effect of tongues on unbelievers to the positive effect of prophecy on unbelievers. Prophecy makes unbelievers into believers. But with untranslated tongues, they stay in their condition. Untranslated tongues can't convert. The sinner's response is confusion, not repentance. But when they are faced with God's word in their language, and it is clear and distinct, when the glories of Christ's work on the cross are expounded, verse 25, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. You are seeing a description of a conversion. It's the sure evidence of God's favor resting on his people when non-Christians enter their midst and repent of sins. The soul is stripped naked of its unrighteous rags. They fall face down and worship God proclaiming, God is really among you. The purpose of worship is to bring people to a sense of wonder. And that is what happens when God's word is proclaimed with clarity. When you expose them to the holiness of God, they must change their lives. Paul says, this is what it should look like, Corinth. It should not look like whatever you got going on over there. Edify the saint, evangelize the sinner. Now let me seek to do both of those things with two closing passionate pleas. The first passionate plea is this. Sinner, like the text commands, let me evangelize you. Sinner, like the text commands, let me evangelize you. This passage is why I address non-Christians every Sunday. You are expected in the worship gatherings. You are expected in the first century church and you are expected in our church. We don't design anything here for you. Nothing is planned so that you will not get bored. Don't make that mistake. This gathering is for Christians, but you are expected to be here. I am calling on you at this moment in your own language, your own tongue, to believe the only tongue that has never lied. 
the Christ tongue. To believe on Jesus Christ does not mean you have a mere intellectual assent to his existence in the first century. It's more. It means you are convinced of his claims about your sinfulness and his holiness. You are persuaded of his truthfulness in your heart. You are convinced deep in your soul that he is the Messiah Savior. That his death on the cross was no mere martyrdom. It was a sin-bearing substitutionary death. He secured salvation for everyone who will repent of their sin and turn to him for forgiveness. I press this question to you. I press Christ's claims on you. I press a decision from you. Right now. End this insanity of trying to live outside of his lordship. Heaven and hell are the only two destinies before you. There is a hell. And you will know that one day. I call upon you to come like a little child. To come to Jesus Christ in simple faith. Come waving the white flag and plunging in the red blood. You have to come on his terms. I exhort you to do this at this very moment. This may be the last opportunity you will ever have to repent of your sin. Enter by faith while the gates are swung open wide. While there's air in your lungs, while there's mercy to cling to, while there's grace to forgive, enter now or be forever lost. How wonderful would it be for you to say, I got saved in a sermon about tongues. And now my tongue will never cease to praise him. Second passionate plea. Saint, see tongues in God's big redemptive historical story. Saint, see tongues in God's big redemptive historical story. Let's view tongues in God's unfolding drama of redemption. From the beginning of time, God has been unfolding a plan. Tongues have always been central to that plan. On the sixth day, God gave his first tongue. He gave it to Adam and Eve. Hebrew. They spoke Hebrew. There was no Japanese or Swahili. There was only one tongue until the Tower of Babel. There, God confounded the languages because of their sin. People were saying, do you sell meat? And other people thought they said, you have stinky feet. It was a bad day. A lot of arguing. Suddenly, there were many tongues and people were spread out all over the earth, grouped in languages. Tongues. In Acts 2, every nation under heaven was gathered to hear the Galileans preach. They preached and each person heard the message in their native tongue, their mother tongue. Many were converted. In that moment, for a split time in history, the Tower of Babel was reversed. It was a linguistic miracle. That happened on a much smaller scale during the founding of the first century church and the times of the apostles and the founding of the church at Corinth. Even the need for tongues reminds us of, of the fall. Beloved, God did more than simply bring the gospel to your tongue. 
He brought the gospel to your flesh. Jesus came in flesh and tongue to redeem you. Even in our passage, we've seen tongues in the Old Testament and tongues in the New Testament. All those tongues are on the old earth. Did you know that God will make a new earth? And on it will be tongues? Not new tongues. The same old tongues. Revelation 7 after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The whole purpose of tongues throughout God's unfolding drama of redemption was for them in the end to sing loudly. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Father, when we hear of tongues, we are reminded of the great lengths you went to to get the gospel to us. Now, Lord, the tongues of those who are your people and those who are not yet your people, make them sing of the Lamb. This is our plea. Amen.